once again, Joe, and thanks for letting me do this. Uh, I don't really recall when I first heard or thought about the idea or the term or even the word as it applied to myself in terms of openness. Um, we've heard a lot uh, in the last 24 hours or since the meeting really began um, about intention versus action. And my intention was always to be an open person. Uh, wonderful Wayne is what I call myself in AA. You know, my intentions have always been fantastically good and my actions have uh, really suffered from my alcoholism and drug addiction. At the end, they were fantastically bad. In terms of openness, though, I'd like to go back to before I began to drink or drug or before I even grew up to an adult. And I think what I'm going to say applies to everyone in AA, of course. Uh, as, uh, that's my own ego uh, problem. But I do find a lot of identification in the meetings, and I think that many of us, at least for me, openness is something that I learned from my parents and from my siblings and from my peers when I was a very young child. And my parents were not very open. Uh, my father was a rageaholic. Uh, when he became angry, uh, he'd get out of the way because he became very physically violent. And that was not something we discussed in our house. But it was something that affected me. I was a small boy physically, and it left me very fearful and not open and not able to talk about that fear. And that fear became a part of my inner self, my inner personality, my inner child. And the openness that would have helped in the solution had to wait 45 years until I hit a bottom. And I'll get to that in a minute. The openness was also not there if something was said or discussed that was not to be discussed outside of the family, some problem, some plan, uh, some activity of the family, or some inner thought. We were the only Jewish family in the town that I lived in, a small town in central Florida, and therefore um, we felt uh, in our family very different, and that was discussed openly at home, but never openly outside of the home. And therefore, I as a child of that family felt different. And while I was told that um, I was better than, uh, really, as a child, that left me feeling much different than everybody else in the community. Um, my brother was a, a very difficult person to be around in our childhood years. He was very angry and hostile. Now I understand why because of this domineering, uh, rageaholic father who he was also very fearful of. But he was not open with me about that. He could not be because he was so fearful. And I was not open with him. So openness was not something that was very um, much present in our family life. Although there was a veneer of it, it wasn't really there. We could not discuss our gut feelings um, without fear. And this was also the case with my peers. And I notice now that even though I look for it with my peers, there's not a great deal of openness uh, in the medical community. Uh, people are guarded, and uh, perhaps more so uh, in the last few years with some of the economic problems that we have faced and some of the grouping together of doctors and other health care providers uh, so that uh, perhaps there are more barriers now to openness than one would hope or one would like. And um, so all of this was part of the milieu or the environment that I came up in. If one, uh, if I hurt or if I was physically ill or if I didn't feel well or if I was afraid, it was not something that I openly discussed or showed. That there was a lack of manliness uh, or macho. 
and the ego within the way of expressiveness, uh, perhaps more so in the male than in the female in our society. But at any rate, there it was. I was uh, trapped by my own skin, trapped by my own ego, trapped by my own fears of what you might think of me and of what my parents might think of me if I really opened up. Over a period of time, uh, I began using drugs and chemicals and alcohols and all the uh, all the bad things that happened to everybody in the program happened to me. Uh, as I said last night in the opening, I was uh, I was arrested. I was arrested for stealing. Uh, when I uh, was arrested, I was booked. I was uh, handcuffed. I was taken away in a squad car, and I like to think of that as my bottom, although it wasn't my bottom. My bottom was not a physical thing. I thought it was my bottom until several years later uh, when I was at a meeting on the wharf in Vancouver and was kind of mealy-mouthed about all, all the difficulties that had not yet happened to me and some old-timer in the back uh, of this room that I was attending, kind of a get-down room, as it were, in Vancouver on the wharf, yelled out, Hey, bub, a bottom is between your ears. And since that time, I have reflected on that statement a great deal because a bottom really did not have anything to do uh, with me in the back of that squad car uh, or trying to walk into the hospital the same day after the chief of staff had heard that I had been arrested uh, and told me not to come into his hospital again because I was an impaired physician. And the bottom really wasn't when I got home with uh, that shit-eating grin on my face that afternoon. And as I walked into the house, uh, this is the same day I was arrested and barred from practicing medicine. And I saw Jackie and I said, uh, Hi, and she says, hi, how was your day? And of course I said, fine. <laughs> and uh, that was not my bottom. My bottom was three weeks later after I got into treatment, and my bottom was when I began to realize what I had done. That was my bottom, when I really began to feel the pain, because you see what I had done and what I suspect most of the people in this room had done was I had anesthetized myself. I had sought euphoria. I had sought feeling good through chemicals, better living through chemistry. I had sought the artificial way rather than the reality of facing what it was that I had become. And when I had to face that, that was my bottom. In a way, it was a relief. Because for me, at that moment, I realized that no matter what else happened, I could now become open. And I can't tell you why I realized that. It's just that almost automatically for me, and I hope so for you, at the bottom, I felt that things could get no worse, and that even if they did get worse, there was nothing I could do about it because now I was truly powerless. It was as though I had come to the edge of the Grand Canyon and had leaped, and that I was no longer in control of my fate. And I had felt, frankly, up until that moment when I awakened or began to awaken and come out of that chemical stupor that I had put myself into, that I was in charge. And therefore, there was no way for me to be open. Because if I opened up with all the negativity and fear, more like terror would have been an appropriate word for me, and all of the inability to function that, I, that had become my persona, then I would have been opening up a sewer. And there was no way I was going to do that. That was not part of my upbringing. That was not part of my ego. That was not part of my desire to fight, fight, fight as the American male. So a bottom for me was the beginning of openness. And as I look back now and have taken an inventory 
and have lived with others who have taken their inventory and have shared back and forth, I see that that was necessary for me to gain openness because my part of my fight, part of the chemical dependency, was to maintain an isolation, a closedness rather than an openness. That for me was an integral part of it and I didn't realize that. Not only did I know, not know about chemical dependency, I did not know about my own persona, my own defects of character that could be overcome with the help of a higher power. I worked the steps. I worked the first step. I realized that I was powerless. It was very simple in this situation that I just explained to you for me to recognize that my life was unmanageable. After all, Jackie wanting a divorce. Uh, Jack saying, don't come in my hospital anymore. Miami Police Department saying, you're going to jail. These were things that were very clear, very physical, very material. But there were other things that had to be conquered. So for me, the first step, while I lingered on the first step, more out of fear and not taking the other steps, the second step for me, coming to believe that there was a power greater than me, basically was going to enough meetings to realize that other people had found a solution and that I was no different than anybody in this room or anybody in IDAA or anybody in mainstream AA or NA in my case. I was the same. I had to identify. And once I began to identify, then I could come to believe that there was, in fact, a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. Even before I had been restored, I could come to believe that by seeing it in other people, by hearing stories that I could identify with. And then the third step in making the decision, after I heard and realized that all I had to do was make the decision, not actually turn my will and my life over, but make the decision to do so. And after it was explained to me by a lovely lady in a very difficult treatment center down in Mississippi uh, where many people had relapsed and come as a last resort that all I had to do was make a decision to work the rest of the steps and that that would turn my will and my life over to the care guys I understood them. by working for, by doing for, by writing an inventory, searching inventory, fearless. There was a word that I didn't know. There was a word that I would have loved to have in my being, in my persona, but because of this terrible fear that I had been raised in and because of this, all the imaginary goblins that were in my life, that if I let anything out of the bag, any openness whatsoever, that it, something terrible would happen, that I would be finished. And now I was finished, so there was nothing left to worry about. That was the grace of bottom for me, the goodness of bottom for me. And while I felt terrible pain, and fear of losing Jackie, and never would I be able to practice medicine again as a doctor. And this uh, feeling that, in fact, I was going to go to jail as soon as I got out of treatment. All of those things were there, but somehow or another, I began to feel great relief, a great comfort in knowing that there was a power greater than myself, there was AA, and that there were other people like me, that I was not alone, and I began to do something, which is the title of this, this session. I began to open up. I really began to open up in group therapy in Miami during the first 28 days of treatment. I was extended, had extended care in Mississippi at Copac, and there I really opened up because we had group therapy for many hours a day. We would have group therapy for three hours in the morning and two or three hours in the afternoon. Now, I don't know if any of you have been through group therapy with that kind of intensity, but let me tell you something. When you've got uh, half the, pop, the, the community population basically uh, prison-bound or in prison and on release to COPAC or, or that kind of very, very hard rock-bottom uh, early recovery, 
you've got some pretty heavy group therapy going on, and uh, there was not much left untouched in any of us in that environment. And therefore, openness, whether or not it had any other effect, I'm not sure, but openness became a part of my life. And we would write down lists, daily lists, of our feelings. And I remember the first list that I wrote down, this was a 24-hour period, I had two feelings. One was good and one was bad. And that, those are the only feelings I felt. In other words, I was still anesthetized. I was very, very uh, heavy into Valium, uh, Placidil, Downers, Tranquilizers, sleeping pills, antihistamines. I had stopped drinking. I was doing a lot of marijuana. And I, all of this uh, was in an effort to keep the lid on, to tranquilize myself. And it took me a hell of a long time to come out and even begin to take an inventory and to see what it was that I was and what I had become. And I was loaded with self-pity. I cried constantly and, and so forth. As I uh, began to realize, though, that this was all a good thing and that no matter what happened with some of these outside uh, things that had happened to me, that no matter what, I was going to be on a different road now in my life and that fear was not going to dominate me anymore, then openness began to take over. And in sharing in group therapy at first and then later in the meetings with people that I hardly knew at all, and then even chairing a meeting. I remember I was asked to chair a meeting in Laurel, Mississippi while I was in treatment at Copac, which was in Community AA. And I was so pleased that I was asked and I was able to share. And there was a small meeting in a little library in a church. And I remember the room chairman, he had a, he had a funny name. His name was Ducky. I've never forgotten his name. A guy named Ducky. But he asked me to chair a meeting. And that was the beginning for me where I began to feel at home and I really at home where I could stand up as I am now and tell you about me without being afraid. The feedback was positive, and that positive feedback fed on my recovery. And I see now that recovery has been a progressive opening of my onion. As the layers have been peeled off, more openness has come out because as that fear dissipates, I'm able to see more of myself. The searching and fearless moral inventory that I did in Mississippi and the fifth step with a uh, Catholic priest um, all these things facilitated and helped me in, on my road to openness and to recovery and to an ability to share. And I see now the purpose in that. And the purpose was not just for something good to happen to me. The purpose was that I now become part of something else, namely Alcoholics Anonymous, where I could be of use to someone else. But I didn't immediately take to that purpose. I was so deep in my own ego problems and in my own recovery. And it was in the eighth and ninth step that true openness came. So that when I came back to uh, Miami, a few things happened that I'd like to relate to you, and then I'm going to open it up, and I want to hear your experience with openness. One of them was is that I was very afraid to go back to the hospital. And um, I think the longest walk I ever took was from the parking lot of that hospital to the doctor's lounge. Uh, two weeks after I came back to Miami, uh, this was back in 1984 in the fall, I parked my car in that parking lot that I'd half destroyed as a maniac and walked up to the doctor's lounge and sat down in the doctor's lounge and I just knew damn good and well I was going to be sitting in a fishbowl and that everybody that walked in there was going to look at me and say, recovering son of a get him out of here. And that didn't happen. And frankly, nobody even realized I'd been gone. And the great shock was that old Wayne's ego, W.W., wonderful Wayne's ego, was right in there like 
the world rose and set out of my own experience. And these people had their own problems and their own lives. And they weren't too concerned about what, as long as it was okay for me to back. They really didn't care about all the other details. And so some of the sting of that left real quick when I realized I just wasn't all that damned important. Other things that happened in the community over the years, uh, the first couple of years of recovery, good things in medicine happened to me. I was allowed to practice. I, I studied back up on some things that I felt rusty on, and I behaved pretty much like an intern for a while, not out of humility, but out of need to learn. And about a year and a half into my recovery, the same guy who had told me, don't come in my hospital, walked up to me one day in the doctor's dining room and said, I want you to be chief of cardiology in my hospital. And so I became chief of cardiology, and we had our first meeting as me, chief of cardiology, and somebody raised their hand in the back of him and said, we ought to have an election instead of an appointment. And I guess he just didn't want a chief of cardiology or a recovering addict. And so we had an election, and I was elected chief of cardiology. Um, that kind of stuff happens to you. You just stop worrying about what everybody thinks, and you open up and look for where can I be of service to somebody else. It's just so gratifying. As I said last night, here I was arrested for stealing, and I joined a home group in Miami, and one year into it, they asked me to be treasurer. That's faith on their part. And with that kind of faith in me, how could I not have faith in them? And how could I not tell them my experience? Because that's really all I had to bring to AA was my experience, my strength, and my hope as I recovered. Jackie and I began to tell our story. We told our stories in our own community. It was really weird going through treatment in my own hospital with my own staff, my own chief of staff looking at me. It was that hospital band and Wayne there on my thing. But, uh, you know, after that, nothing was left. We were stripped. Both of us were stripped, Jackie and I. And the shame and the guilt, either these are going to engulf us or we were going to go ahead forward with it. And that's what we chose to do. We went forward. And it was tough. But we went to a lot of open AA meetings together. We went to, we made sort of a date out of Saturday night. And at first we went outside the community, the suburban meetings. And then we, we began to become very active in AA in our local community. And we shared our story. And there was no negative feedback. And we shared our story at IDAA. We shared our story at the Baltimore meeting. And we began to talk at the meetings. And we organized IDAA local groups in Miami and elsewhere. And we got active in the state group with John Butcher and others. And we began to feel something that will just simply not allow one to be closed. And that is we felt we belonged. And that's what had been missing in my life. And it just didn't happen overnight. It was the product of attending the meetings, of being a member in good standing, of joining in my community, not just AA, but in the medical community and in other community activities, and not being afraid. And that did not come from me. That came from a power greater than myself that relieved me of the defects. And as I went through the eighth and ninth step and went to all those partners that I had screwed and made the amends, not just I'm sorry, but made financial offers and so forth, I began to feel that I could hold my head up in that community. And now, for me, Miami is the greatest place in the world. I remember when I first got into recovery, I thought, I'm getting the hell out of here. i got to get out of this thing. i got to start all over. I know, I know it's a geographic, but there is no way I'm going to be able to compete and to function in a community like Miami having done what I did. And I did a lot. And nothing could have been farther from the truth. That would have been the greatest mistake of my life. First of all, I've been running away from me. And second of all, I would have been running away from my home. 
And nothing would have left me lower than a snake's belly than running because that's what I had been doing all my life, running from my feelings. That's what a lack of openness was for me, running away from me and what I wanted to be. So now there it is. It's no longer my intention. It's my action. And when I start backing away from it, and I feel myself doing that from time to time, when I start feeling that I'm less than, when I'm feeling that I don't belong or my opinion doesn't count, not that my ego or that I know best, but that I do belong, that I am a member, that I do belong in that community and in AA, and that I'm a member in good standing, and I do work my steps, and that I do believe that there is a power greater than myself. Sometimes that power is just AA. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's something else much greater and much closer to my heart. And there are days when I feel at one with that power, and that's a peaceful day. And that leaves me open to tell you about me. So I'd like for you to tell me a little bit about your experience with openness, and I think uh, we do have a microphone we can pass around, do we? Or we did. If not, there's a mic up here, and I'll call on you if you don't come up. <laughs> come on up, please. Thank you very much. My name is Gene, and I'm an alcoholic. And... Um, this subject of openness just sort of hit me today. It's what I really needed to hear. And I was thinking about a parking lot experience that happened to me when I was really trying to look for some way to get help for the way I felt. And I'm an, I'm an obstetrician gynecologist, and one of the pediatricians in our hospital was an alcoholic who got sober and started his own treatment program. And I knew him for many years as a pediatrician. But when he got sober, it was like an awesome thing for me to watch. He got sober, and I wondered how that came about. And I wanted so much to tell him about myself. And I would meet him in the parking lot almost every day. And I had made a decision that I really was going to do something about myself. I didn't quite know how to go about it, but I knew that he might be the link for me. And... I brought myself to him every day and said, how's the weather? How are the patients? How's your job? How's your car? And this went on for really weeks. And then I finally got to the point where I said, there's something I'd like to talk to you about, but I can't talk about it here in the parking lot. And he sort of gave me a look and he said, well, how long have you been an alcoholic? <laughs> and, uh, he says, we didn't notice it around here, you know. And I just felt like so relieved. And I really felt joyous. I was frightened to death because I didn't know what to do from there. But that was the, sort of like the beginning of my openness. And um, it really, it went on from there. I did get better. He did help me. And... Um, the that little chink in openness was just what started my whole recovery. Um, I remember too finishing up in a rehab program. I I went out to Arizona. I'm from New Jersey, and um, while I was in rehab, my senior partner had told everyone, the community, the patients, the hospital administrators, the nurses, the nurses who worked for us, that I was away. Uh, learning how to be a strict um, uh, regulator of diet to cure my diabetes. 
And uh, I was terrified about coming back to my community because I was so afraid that people would think that I'm a diabetic. And I just really wanted to tell them that I was an alcoholic. And um, I didn't know how to go about that. So I, ha- I had a, a real good, some real good advice from the spiritual advisor where I was, Dr. George Nash. And he told me his story. And he, he was a neurosurgeon. And he said to me, Gene, if you go back and play that silly rigmarole of being a diabetic, you'll drink again, number one, and you'll not be yourself, and you'll just lose everything. And I I sort of intuitively knew that he was right. And he sort of gave me permission to go back and go to my staff, go to the administration, and go to my patients and tell them, what I really was all about. And uh, it was not easy. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. One extremely difficult part of it was my partners were so glad to see me back because they were tired of working every night. They had booked uh, cases for me on my first day back, a repeat cesarean section and a circumcision. And I was afraid I had lost all my skills. I was afraid not quite sure why. I was afraid I wouldn't be able to perform these procedures. And I didn't want to cut anything off, literally, you know. And I was afraid I was shaking. And uh, I knew that I could do it if I could get back and tell everyone first. But they had uh, set things up for me so early, and those first two procedures were just agonizingly painful for me. And um, I was so afraid to do it, I, I uh, had one of the um, nurses that I knew and for a long time and trusted and told her that where I'd been. And I asked her to just stand with me when I did this circumcision. And she wasn't quite sure why, because she had seen me done it many times. But she did that. And I didn't shake. And it was okay. We did the operative procedure, the repeat cesarean section, and that very, went very well. And those were the two difficult cases I've ever done in my life. After that, when I was able to share with everyone, it really made it easier. And I really, to this day, I'm so glad that I do have the sense that openness is very important for me. I can't do anything in a secretive way anymore. And I don't want to hide my recovery or who I really am. I think if I develop diabetes, I'll be willing to share that then too. And it's a very, very meaningful part of my recovery to be open. It's really helped me stay sober, and it helps me uh, every day. Thank you. Thanks for letting me share. There were two things you said that I want to just say the exact same thing happened to me. And one was the idea of using other doctors to help me, another medical personnel to help me. I was very afraid to ask for consultations before I went in, primarily because they'd find out about me and realize what a lousy job I was doing. And the opposite was my feeling when I came back and since then. Use consultants, use nurses, use friendly people in the in the program or out of the program. This is where the Florida Medical Professional Group has been so helpful to me. And the consultants in the town, and I've, I've got a cadre of people that I work with now that I'm just not afraid to call them at any time just to ask an opinion or to ask them to see a patient with me or to get a second opinion. When that 
that uh, thought used to come from a patient, gee, I'd like to get a second opinion. I used to just, you know, the hair would stand up on the back of my neck. Who do they think they are? Don't they know who I am? And now it's just immediate. You want a second opinion? Or sometime I'll even suggest that they get a second opinion. So that that attitude is gone. Um, and, and that's been very helpful. Thank you for mentioning that. Come right up. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm an addict. And thanks for your lead. You know, I wish I had thought of asking colleagues for help. I remember a couple of years before my intervention, we had a class reunion, and one of the guys that was in my class, he's the only one that passed around cards, and I was sitting next to him, and he gave me a card that said, addictionologist slash psychiatrist, and this was the peak of my addiction. And I looked at the card, and I thought, you know, I bet he could help my family. Never even considered the possibility that he could help me, but... uh, there are several things I could relate to in your story. You know, um, initially, you know, my intervention, I had uh, gone to a child abuse committee meeting, which I was a chairman, and gone to an executive committee meeting. I was a chief of staff, and um, you know, I was on all these committees. The director of the ER, I just put chest tubes in somebody, and the receptionist came up to me and said, "She said, Doctor, th- this woman's driving me crazy. She's from the physician's assistant program, and she insists on talking to you." And I said, "Well, you'll have to tell her we don't use the physician's assistants here." And so she came back and, I mean, that's how much I knew about this. And so she came back and she said, she said uh, to make it clear to you that you don't understand and she'd advise you to go to your phone, your private phone and talk to her. So, so needless to say, that started off uh, my fall down the top of a ladder. And, and, but this day I'm very grateful that happened. And I remember going into treatment. It was such a, such a great awakening for me. I went into a small group. That was the first thing I did. And everybody was talking so openly about, you know, this one guy I remember saying, you know, I'm a liar and, and I'm a cheat and just, you know, saying these things and I couldn't believe it. And I, I realized that I wasn't alone. It's kind of a great feeling actually. No matter, uh, no matter what, even had the, the, the label as a drug addict, at least I knew who I was, you know. Um, but we were going to do the geographic location too. We even got an appraisal on our house because when I was in treatment, thing hit the newspapers. And that's how my kids found out where I was. They thought I was at a CME course, and one of the kids at school brought them the newspaper article and said, "Isn't this your dad?" And uh, so, so that was that was kind of rough. So we had thought of that, and and I remember going to the counselor and saying, "You know, you know, life's over. I mean, this isn't a newspaper. I got to move out of town." And I remember her saying, "Well, the good thing is, and one day you'll be grateful. You don't have to worry about who knows and who doesn't." And I thought, "You bitch. You know, I mean, what a." What a thing to say. It was awful. But you know, that is honest to God's truth. Although I remember walking into the hospital and I had lost the job that I was at, gratefully, and went to a hospital where I had done my residency. And I came back and the first day I was back, it was tough to go back. And one of the guys came in, one of the surgeons, and said, hey, glad you're back. And it was real positive. And I said, well, I am too. I'm really glad to be back. I just wish it didn't happen like it was. And he said, what, didn't they give you enough money? He didn't have a clue. I mean, you know, I thought because it was in the newspaper, everybody in the world knew, and that just wasn't the case. And, you know, just 15 months after that, I was, you know, made the director of this ER, so just by working hard. And, it, you know, so I appreciate your story, and I can relate to a lot of it. Thanks. There's one other area of openness, and that was with our kids. I had not been open with them. I had been hiding from them. I had been hiding from my responsibility towards them. And that was one of the first issues that I did uh, direct myself to. As soon as I got back from treatment, uh, we had a family meeting, and I sat down and told my story as best I could without being brutal or hurting them. And uh, our relationship began that night. 
uh, and and it was essentially non-existent before that, and since then it has flowered. So without that bottom, I could not have been open with my kids, and uh, uh, that was part of my eighth and ninth step. Uh, how about uh, some of the others? Yeah, please. My name is Daryl, and I'm a cross-addicted alcoholic. Hi. I'm really grateful to be here and to listen to your stories, and I think openness is really a, a good topic. I saw it on the agenda, and I remember how much I felt I had to hide all my dark fears that I might become an alcoholic like my dad was, and I remember being determined never to become an alcoholic. And I thought if I, if you just don't ever drink or you don't drink too much, then you can't be an alcoholic. So I would kind of white knuckle it along and then I saw a counselor one day and said, can you give me some adult child of alcoholic therapy? Because I had read Suzanne Summers' book, Keeping Secrets, and it was Eureka, that's what I am. She said, well, Daryl, I could, but first I'd have to treat your alcoholism. And I told my wife, Barbara, who's sitting here with me, and she said, Daryl, don't go see that woman anymore. And of course, that's what I thought, too, was, you know, I'm going to stay away from her. <clears throat> from that day, it was uh, July of 1986, I have had no alcohol. And yet, I've managed to run my life into the ground, developing other compulsive behaviors. I found out that if I didn't drink, I could use a little of this and a little of that. Then I got into gambling. Then I had some sexual compulsivity problems. And the whole time I had failed to embrace the fact that my alcoholism was a spiritual disease. It was partly genetic. It was a disease of the dishonesty and of the insecurity and the fear and finding ways to medicate it was also a condition that put binders on me and told me I didn't have it. And the monkey on my back was a cross-dresser that I never knew what it was going to look like. So I managed to get into treatment a couple of times before I got my head straight enough and had enough disclosure with my wife and enough turbulence and loss in my life to where, you know, I'm kind of starting over again and I just hope that I can have the level of honesty and maintain the spiritual connection and embrace the fact that I'm an alcoholic and just love the fact that I can follow in the footsteps of other guys that have gotten just as screwed up and love that part of me instead of hiding from it my whole life. Thanks. My name is Tim. I'm an alcoholic and addict. I come to meetings to hear the good things that happen to people who come to meetings. And this is a perfect example. When Joe called me and asked me if I wouldn't participate in speaking on uh, honesty and did I know anybody else who might be able to participate, and I suggested to him uh, Wayne's name to talk on openness and Tulio's name to talk on willingness. Uh, and I made a suggestion along the lines, Joe, the thing that 
cussed me most over the years in going to meetings was what I heard from the floor, what I heard people share. And the thing, instead of having one person talk for 45 minutes or an hour on the subject, let's just have a short talk and then open it up for discussion. And that's how we decided, he decided to approach this. And if he didn't do that, then we wouldn't have heard some of the wonderful stuff that we heard this morning from the floor uh, after I had shared on honesty. We wouldn't have heard some of this wonderful stuff I wouldn't have heard that I heard this afternoon here. This validates something for me. It validates uh, how important openness is, what it does, and how it has helped others. It validates the fact that the fears we had and the fears I had about uh, being open aren't true. For the 17, 18 years I've been coming to these meetings and many other meetings, I haven't heard one or two, the most, people who have ever suffered or been hurt by being open. I have never heard anybody uh, having bad things happening, happening to them from acknowledging their uh, alcoholism, acknowledging that they're in recovery, not sneaking around and doing things. And we've had people in our professional groups who have kept away because they've been afraid of openness and uh, secretive about their anonymity. I've looked back, I've had occasion to take several inventories and the more I do this, and I do it more frequently now that I'm older and retired and have the time and am reflective, and I look back at the past 18 years of my life, and the best things happened to me, and the most rewarding things have been happening to me because of being willing to open up and being open. Uh, it happened when I went for a job interview. And I told them that I wanted a job in New Jersey because I want to be close to the New Jersey professional group, that I am a recovering alcoholic, and that there's a group here that I want to be close to. These people were so flabbergasted by my openness that I got the job. And this has happened over and over and over again. And all the other people and other stories I've heard, uh, it has done more to heal uh, relationships and to heal friendships. Uh, I went to the Florida meeting last November, they have it the first week of November, and it was at Ponte Vedra and I live close by there, and I went and Wayne is the secretary treasurer of the Florida Medical Group and he's very active and he does a lot of organizing. And He was running around and uh, somehow we mentioned computers. Uh, I told him I've just gotten into him, and oh, he says, I love him myself. And so we exchanged uh, computer ID numbers, addresses. And soon after I got home from that meeting, I wrote to him, and he wrote back to me. And we've had a dialogue. We've had, even though it's electronic, it's on a screen, it's a kind of openness that we've developed, and we've developed a closeness. And it was on the basis of this that I could say to Joe, get in touch with Wayne. He'd be happy to 
share on that. And although we share a lot on the electronic highway, I've heard things from him tonight, this afternoon, that I didn't know about. And that's what happens when we can tell our story and open up to each other. It's the most healing experience I've ever had. And it keeps me coming back. It's it's an addiction that I hope I never lose. Thank you. Uh, before we go or finish up, I, I would come right up. I just want to add one thing to what Tony said. If anybody in here has a computer and a modem and a telephone and wants to get on our network, please contact either one of us after me. We'll tell you how to do it. It's great. I'm Brian. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, Wayne, for uh, sharing this uh, this topic with us. I I would like to tell you of the rewards of openness uh, that I have uh, enjoyed. I got out of treatment in December of '86, and I think because of my behavior, because I had changed so much with my children. That in 87, my oldest daughter went into treatment. I was completely unsuspecting of her addictions. In 88, my son went into treatment. And in February of 91, my third child, Mary, who had been living in Germany, called and said, Dad, I think I too have the problem with alcohol that you had. And that I thank you for showing us the way of, of being able to change your life and being able to admit that you had this disease. So I couldn't take any credit, I think, for that. But at least my three children are are in the program and in, in active in their recovery. Uh, and all three have been at IDAA at one time or another. The second uh, element of my rewards uh, of openness, I think, occurred when I was invited to interview at uh, Mayo Clinic Scottsdale in uh, in 88. And I liked them and they liked me and uh, so I applied for an Arizona license and thought this is my this is my big step. Do I tell them about my alcoholism or do I just sort of gloss it over because Wisconsin had no knowledge that I had uh, been in treatment and had uh, a problem with alcohol. But I sat down at the typewriter and I wrapped out this page and a half of my story and sent it in with my application. And they invited me down to interview with the board in uh, early of 89. And uh, there was a square of tables, I think 18 people, and I was on one side alone. And a man over here uh, to my left said, when was your last drink? And I said, November 4, 1986. And he stood up and pointed his finger at the chairman. I know he hasn't had a drink since then. When they remember their last drink, that means they're in the program. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just felt so good about being honest and open. Uh, and I got a license there, but I, I just decided that my support was in Wisconsin, that I shouldn't make a move to Scottsdale at that time. Well, my third reward for openness uh, was in uh, Thanksgiving, of, uh, Thanksgiving of 91, when my brother and his wife had invited me 
to dinner, uh, Thanksgiving dinner in uh, Illinois, uh, and they had invited Sandy, who was a, a divorcee of 10 years uh, uh, with also three children, and uh, her son was visiting uh, that time, so he was there. And afterward, we all went walking to walk off the Illinois turkey and potatoes and so on. And I started telling Sandy about my alcoholism and about what led up to it and the program of recovery and what I was doing, attending meetings and about IDAA and all that. Well, we're now husband and wife. And I think that was another reward of my openness. So thank you, Wayne, for, for this and for giving me the opportunity to speak. I'm a shy, sensitive alcoholic, and Bob is my problem. Um, I, I think that, uh, that this is a, a very good topic, uh, especially for me. I come from uh, several generations of very uh, closed-mouthed, unemotional men, and uh, have I have a, I don't have any problems communicating with my patients or, or my colleagues. You know, I can open up to them very easily. And, uh, you know, my wife knows all the, uh, intimate and sordid details of my disease and my recovery. I, I would not have recovered or I would not be in recovery if it hadn't been for her. But, uh, I was sitting, sitting here thinking about, uh, all the, the really good comments I heard. And it occurs to me that the uh, the one thing I haven't really done yet, and and this uh, this particular meeting has made me think of this, is I haven't really sat down with my kids. Uh, I have two children. Uh, Garrett is 13 and Lauren is 11. Uh, I went into treatment uh, about a month after my son was born, and he's never known me to to use. And I've been sober since uh, he was three and a half or four months old, but I've never really sat down and told them about uh, what happened to me, and uh, I really think that I need to do this. Uh, I think it will will make us closer, and, uh, you know, I'm apprehensive about what's going to happen to them as they get, as they get a little older. Are they going to have what I had? And uh, if they are, I was trying to, I was trying to think of some good warning signs for them. Um, you know, if you if you start to drink and if it becomes important to you to drink. You now I was trying to look back over my career and uh, um, and trying to think of some warning signs to them. And but really, I think that uh, I just need to be honest with my kids. And and probably the best the best thing I ever heard about uh, a relationship of somebody who's in recovery with their kids. And he could see that his kids were started, starting to go down the garden path of alcoholism and drugs. And he was absolutely beside himself and he didn't know what to do. Uh, so he finally made the decision that he was going to give his kids to God. And once he made that decision, uh, everything just sort of uh, fell into place and the kids went their own way and, and they, they, they got better. But I, I think that uh, what I've heard here today is that is that openness is, and honesty, is the key to uh, good relationships.
And uh, thank, I'd like to thank everybody for their comments. I'm Theo, I'm an alcoholic and addict, and it's good to be here. I uh, just finished uh, my first year back at work um, after taking two and a half years off from work, and I was at the IDA meeting in Scottsdale two plus years ago and met a man who um, I hit it off with and I wasn't working then, and um, I'm a perinatologist, which means I'm overtrained. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist with two years fellowship. And I took two plus years off from work and I met Jim R at IDAA. And after about eight, nine months from IDAA, I was looking around, getting ready to go back to work. And I called Jim up and asked him if they needed any OBGYNs out where he lives. Came out and interviewed and sat down with the four people that work out there. And the first thing I said to him was that I'm an alcoholic, I'm in recovery. And for me, I ended up homeless for four months near death. And I told him the most important thing in my life is my recovery above everything because if I don't stay in recovery, I won't be practicing medicine. And um, it went from there and uh, I went out there to this rural area because I thought that I could get away from the big city high stress practice that I had. And the first day for me back at work, it had been two and a half years since I picked up a scalpel and I'd done a lot of surgery previously but none in the interim. And um, I had a 34-weeker that was pregnant, abrupting, and I said, well, that's an easy one. I'll put her on a helicopter and send her to the big city. Put her on a helicopter and she bust loose bleeding. And I called up one of my partners and said, Brad, this lady can't go on the helicopter. She's going to die. We've got to deliver her. And he goes, well, section her. <laughs> and I said, it's been two and a half years. He goes, well, after today, we'll have done a section. <laughs> so he stayed in his office. I sectioned her and everything went fine. And um, about two weeks after that, uh, one of the docs asked me to do a consult. A uh, 44-year-old woman with an acute abdomen. And uh, since I met her, I said, ma'am, I just met you, but you need to go to the OR um, where you're going to die. She had big tube ovarian abscesses. And I called up some of the guys and I said, it's been a couple of years since I did one of these. These are difficult cases. And they said, we'll just go do it and we'll be there with you. And uh, you know, just by the grace of God, I, I think um, as much as anything, I went through the case. She went home post out day four and did very well. She's very satisfied. And um, I think it's often being open um, and not, and I think really facing the shame and the guilt over this disease and um, realizing that there is a God there and it's not Steve and uh, realizing that I'm just not that damn important, <laughs> you know, much as I like to think I am sometimes. So, um, I think really my part of why uh, my return to work has been so successful is just from the openness and uh, there's been a lot of fear at times in the middle of the night when I've had some difficult cases but uh, there's nothing wrong with picking up that phone and saying, hey, you know, what would you do here, you know, calling someone anywhere, you know, and sharing some of the decision-making processes, realizing that sometimes even when I do good work, bad things, bad outcomes are going to occur. That's the nature of the business when you pick up a knife. and. Um, accepting that. So, um, thanks for letting me share. My name is uh, Bill and I'm an alcoholic pathologist. That may be an oxymoron, but I'm an 
alcoholic pathologist from uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, Wayne, you and I have the same story. Uh, although I didn't go to COPEC, but where I did go sounds very similar. Uh, the uh, um, parallels are that uh, uh, I got my family back. Uh, my son is in the program. Actually, he has one year less than I do. Uh, and that relationship is unbelievable. I mean, to get that back, uh, you know, I, I just get down on my knees and thank God every day. So that was one, and the, probably the most important. The second is uh, openness in my uh, uh, work has had many rewards. Uh, the ghastly enterologists come in and ask me to speak to some of their uh, patients periodically and and uh, uh, even uh, uh, every now and then uh, one of my colleagues will come in and shut the door and look around for the uh, bugs in the office and, and then uh, and then say bill don't you don't you know a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous and I, I say well, I, let me just tell you, I attend as often as I can, and and then we open up and uh, and uh, and actually the one guy that uh, most recently did that is and now has a year and he's the uh, board of directors for the he's on the board of directors for the uh, uh, largest uh, malpractice insurance company in Colorado, and uh, but the the latest reward and the the most important is that uh, uh, my wife and I are, are uh, I have three children by, by previous marriage. Actually, I've been married 30-some years, but you have to tote them all up uh, to get that many. You know, another blessing of alcoholism. And, uh, but uh, Kathy and I have uh, been married eight years and have been trying to have a, a baby for six years, and and we couldn't, and we went through all of the the uh, uh, manipulations that one has to go through to get that, and uh, and it didn't happen. So the last recourse for us has been to an, to adopt children or to adopt a child, and and uh, so we sat down with the agency, and and the first thing I said is that I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I need to let you know that now, uh, you know, with the fear that uh, that would shut the doors for us. And needless to say, the uh, uh, word has come back. Uh, actually, the words from the lady that runs the program were, oh, we all have skeletons in our closet. That's not going to slow things down. So we've been approved uh, two weeks ago to proceed with the adoption. And uh, I think openness is the only way to go. I'm Joe, and I'm still an alcoholic and drug addict. When I listened to Bo share, it kind of reminded me when uh, I had those same fears with my kids. And my son was about five, and one night I was putting him down to bed, and he looked up at me with those eyes, and he was admiring me. And I think every father wants their son to grow up like they are. And he says to me, Daddy, I said, Daddy, when I get old and I get big, I want to be just like you. And I said, really? He says, yeah, I want to do drugs just like you did. 
And that led me uh, down for a few times. I think I called Tony and I said, oh God, what do I do? And I heard it here. Turn my children over to God. My biggest fear when I went into rehab was, what are they, you know, the other people with me, but they were they at that time, they weren't me. What are they going to say when they find out that I'm an alcoholic and an addict? Um, what am I going to do with my prescription pad? You know, what are they going to do to me? Well, as fate had it, the medical board in New Jersey took charge of my openness. Okay. They suspended my license. We have a newsletter. We call it a hit list that they print with your name in it. And they took care of the openness part of me. So almost like the message was, Joe, you have to work on you. Forget about what people are going to think about you. You have a lot to work on you. Last night, as I was... I was up late and I was passing the halls. One of the scholarship people came up to me and said, uh, after the call-up meeting, uh, she said, uh, boy, you really spoke from your heart. I really like what you said. And I realized that there's a part of me that all, ever since I can remember, I always wanted to speak about the things that were inside of me. And I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to get them out. Uh, I was afraid people would laugh. What would they think? Would they laugh at me? What Are they going to think less of me? And I've learned that the best way that I can help other people, and I know as a healthcare professional, that's essentially what I wanted to do. Uh, last night I mentioned that I wanted to become the doctor to please my mother, but there is a side of that. I, I really want to help people. And I've learned in these rooms and from people sharing and through the process of sharing that the best way I can help other people is to open up myself to them, show them how I accept myself, my total self, my pluses, my minuses, I said to Dick McKinley that this meeting is allowing me to practice the second part of the 12 step. Uh, we strive for progress and not perfection. There's lots of imperfections. But we're progressing, and I'm progressing, and I'm getting well. I, I like to say I'm getting weller every day. And uh, the sharing is a process, and I was open enough when Tony made that suggestion to take it about the format of these meetings. And uh, I, I think they're great, and I want to thank Tony because uh, I'm open enough today, and he's my sponsor too. So when he makes a suggestion, I take it. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's a wonderful process to be able to go around and listen to people and have someone share. And um, we're going to hear a little bit more tomorrow on the third part of this. I mentioned the how, the honesty, the openness, and tomorrow we hear about the willingness. And I want to thank Wayne for speaking for us and, uh, and bringing us a good meeting. I thank you all. Thank you.